the main question or the main idea that drives my work is how do we kind of make this merger between humans and technology feel natural? The reason it started with humans and technology is because, you know, we've always been evolving. We've always been kind of growing. And with that has come our technology to the point where we're really, truly like merging. So how can we make that merger happen in a way that feels natural to our bodies? And so that's what my work is kind of focused on is how can we almost grow technology? And so really like, how do we place our technology on our planet and ground it in our planet and in nature? Because what I think is, you know, if we want technology to feel natural, why don't we just let nature design it herself and grow it? Welcome back to the SolidWorks Born to Design community, a collection of inspiring stories about those who create, build, invent, and engineer new ideas into actual new products. And by the way, they all use SolidWorks. I'm your host, Cliff Melling, and I want to thank you for joining us for this special episode of the Born to Design podcast titled Merging Humans and Technology, a discussion with maker Kate Reed. Today, I'm talking with Kate Reed, a designer, inventor, mentor, maker, and a key member of the SolidWorks community. Kate is a leader in the study and innovation of wearable technology, leveraging principles of nature to better connect humans and computers. And she has some fascinating research and knowledge to share with all of you. So let's jump right into the interview, shall we? So I know what you're doing with this wearable technology. Such a cool concept. I think you're ahead of the curve. This will probably be something that keeps growing, but tell us about what you're doing now. Yeah, totally. So the main question or the main idea that drives my work is how do we kind of make this merger between humans and technology feel natural? And I think the reason it started with humans and technology is because, you know, we've always been evolving. We've always been kind of growing. And with that has come our technology to the point where we're really, truly like merging, you know, ever since the industrial revolution, man works with machine, like they, they're kind of one in the same And so I think what really drives me is how can we make that merger happen in a way that feels natural to our bodies, both in a way that makes the technology feel natural, but also in a way that is natural. Um, And so that's what my work is kind of focused on is how can we almost like grow technology? Because what I think is, you know, if we want technology to feel natural, why don't we just let nature design it herself and grow it? So that's where I'm centered is really how can we grow technology and grow the next generation of devices? And so for me, like half of that happens kind of computationally. So growing the design of these things. So that's through like uh, natural growth algorithms um, and algorithmic modeling. So being able to kind of model the elements and principles of nature and digital space, and then being able to 3D print that out and pair that onto the body or wherever you want. And that half kind of all happens into so system solutions. And then the other half is really like getting down and dirty and working with living natural collaborators and actually growing electronics and circuits themselves. And so that's done with a lot of like mushrooms and fungi and E. coli. And it's all like, it sounds super crazy and it is super crazy, but it actually works. Like we can actually grow circuit boards. And so that's kind of like where my work's at now is really like, how can we grow technology and have living and evolving technology? You know, that's so interesting. That's fascinating because I'm a designer myself. My degree is design. It was always the form follows function, right? Mm -hmm. And we design technology now. Okay, does it fit in the pocket? Does it fit in your hand? And that's that's like at the basic level. So you're taking it to the next level, right? And and looking at it from a nature, looking at technology perspective instead of a technology, seeing how it fits into nature. So no, that's 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 fascinating. That's that's a great uh, explanation. Gives it a bigger picture. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like 
you know, a lot of like traditional kind of design processes, it's like human and machine, it's, you know, human computer interaction, it's all about the human. But what that often forgets is like the context and like the context of our planet too. Like, why can't we have a machine that interacts not only with humans, but its environment and is actually growing and living. And so it's like, really like, how do we place our technology on our planet and ground it in our planet and in nature? So that's that's good. So where did this all get started? I hear I heard you started this when you were 13. Yeah, yeah. So I was I was so fortunate to have cool parents is what I always say, because in reality, it started a lot younger. But I was so lucky to have such cool parents who really just saw me and saw the way I was learning and put me in the position to be able to kind of like grow as a child in the way I was learning. And so for me, like I was always very hands on person for me, like I always had to make it in order to understand it or to feel it. Um, And really, like there's something so important about feeling that something is right as opposed to learning or studying that it's right. And so what ended up happening to me was I ended up actually dropping out of high school and becoming kind of the first graduate of this program at MIT called New View Studio um, that was all project-based learning centered around the architecture studio model. And basically the way it worked was every two weeks you'd be presented with a problem. And these were like big world problems, um, like solve global warming, hack a wheelchair, create you know musical instruments, whatever. And by the end of the two weeks, you're expected to have solved the problem, have prototyped your entire, like have a working prototype, um, have documented your entire process, and then give a 20 minute presentation to the MIT community. And so I ended up being kind of their first student there and their first graduate of that program. And that program was just very much like, you have a problem, like go figure it out, go do it, like hands-on, you know, they're not gonna teach you math or science or physics. Like we're building airplanes this week. You have to figure out how your plane works. And then we'll talk about, you know, why it worked afterwards. And so that like, I, I mean, I was just so lucky to be able to kind of be ingrained in like the making process and have the tools and solutions, like to be able to kind of start to put what I was thinking in my head into reality. And so that's where I got like all of my kind of basic and, you know, 3D modeling and computer science, programming, design, all that stuff. And then I continued on to the Brown RISD dual degree program where I got a degree in industrial design and computational technology at RISD and then a degree in social innovation and entrepreneurship at Brown and kind of took those skills to like the next level. But it really, it honestly wasn't until I ended up at the Systems that I, I really kind of like shifted my perspective and pushed into this idea of like, how do we go beyond biomimicry and into interspecies collaboration? Um, and I think what happened there was I had access to kind of these amazing tools when I was in high school, like, you know, anything I could dream of. And then I went to college and I had less access than I was used to. And then what happened was I graduated and I ended up at Dassault Systems as their artist in residence. And all of a sudden I had had access to all of these amazing tools again and five years had passed. So like the softwares were like now, you know, little things that were a problem before were like not even close to a problem. You know, 3D printing has come so far since kind of the first time I started doing it. And then, you know, it was just like everything started to click and everything started to work together. And now I'm just like a, a wild young person growing technology. Like it's just super, super cool how it kind of all worked out. And like the stars aligned to make this like, you know, my crazy dreams come true. <laughs> no, it, and it's great. And, I, and I, it's funny with this podcast, we talk about this a lot. We talk a lot about education and how a lot of people in this space and designers and engineers don't learn in the typical schoolroom environment atmosphere. 
they learn hands-on. Like there's even, I, I was talking to teachers before who, you know, students were making Ds in classes. They were introduced to SOLIDWORKS and design software and they just excelled at it and they were training themselves after a while. So it's, uh, we have to find a better way. Uh, this is, I'm, I'm getting on my soapbox here, but we, <laughs> we have to find a better way to, to help those children, my daughter included, uh, who don't learn as great in the in the normal school environment, but are hands-on and learn by doing. And, and you know, I think it's great that, you know, they're throwing these problems at you and you're coming up with new ideas Especially, this is what our young people are doing. Our young people in the, all over the world are very creative. Throw crazy ideas at them, you know, <laughs> have them solve the problem instead of memorizing the names of state capitals. Or I don't know, <laughs> but but uh, I mean that that's probably important as well. I should say that, but uh, but you know, this is this is excellent. That's great. Well, wow, RISD, yeah, I mean, I, that's yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, school. I think there's also like for me, one thing that I was always kind of like taught and ingrained in is like creativity is like really a muscle. Like you have to work at it and you have to practice it. And by practicing it, you know, by just going through a bunch of problems or going through kind of like a bunch of prototypes of something, like you're actually, you're getting more efficient, you're getting better. You know, it's like truly a muscle and we should, we should treat, teach it and train it like that. But anyway, I like that. I, I like, no, I like that. A creativity is a muscle. Well, we, we do that with sports. You have to keep practicing your sport to be better at it. You can be a good yeah. athlete, but you need to keep practicing it creativity is the same way. You, you can't just, oh, I'm creative, but I haven't done anything yeah. in a year, right? You have yeah. to keep working it. Yeah, that's good. Well, especially well, obviously, all the soft skills too in education. It, it's not just about knowing the facts, but being able to talk to someone, a real skill, being able to present your work. How do we, how do we practice that? That's, that's good. So how did you really get involved in more of the organic shapes and how, how did that yeah. start out? You know, I was always interested in how can we merge body with technology? For me, like as soon as I learned how to make a robot, it was always making a robot on the body. It was always like this kind of personal one-to-one interaction. So I started kind of almost in like the high fashion realm, making these like interesting wearable robots. And these were what I called biomimetic wearable computers that were all kind of centered around biomimicry. It was looking at like, how can things, how can we copy things that work really well in nature and apply us as humans? And does that solve our problems? So I made like all sorts of these kind of like wearable computers and wearable technologies. That was really the center of my work was like copying nature and mimicry and copying. Um, but it really was kind of like once I once I got kind of linked back up with the software in terms of like the cell system solutions, like once I got kind of exposed to how much progress had been made kind of in that software time. And once I got into this like algorithmic modeling, it was a very natural process. It was like, okay. I'm sick of copying nature. Like, I feel like, why do I have to be here to do this? I want a wearable computer that feels natural. Why do I have to like try to interpret and like copy nature? Like, this is silly. My dream is like, I get to sit back and do nothing and just have like nature grow the technology yourself and like have biology talking to the technology. And like, I don't, I don't know why, why I have to be there. And so that's where I kind of like started like programming some of these algorithms and exploring like parametric design and in terms of like, coding growth and coding these like processes. And so I started coding all these algorithms and then 3D printing them out and kind of pairing them with the body to see how they worked. And then I started, you know, coding these natural growth algorithms, printing them out and pairing them with like living collaborators and seeing like, okay, this is like a computational model of this. What happens if I actually grow the real thing on top of it? And then I started to have these really interesting like conversations and collaborations that couldn't happen in real life. Um, and that's where everything like started to get sticky and smelly and all sorts of like gooeyness. 
Um, and that's kind of, that's where I'm, where I am now is like, really, how can I like create these kind of systems and design systems where like, I don't, I don't want to be involved. You know, I like to just say like, okay, little mushroom, like you go grow. Like I want to see what happens. Like for me, I'm like all about the noise and seeing how like the mistakes that computers make and things. So I'm kind of, my, my goal is to just like sit back and watch. <laughs> this is fascinating. This is really fascinating. By the way, this is, this is great. Uh, this is better than I even expected. I know you had some interesting, uh, Great background. I didn't know you did the coding and stuff too. So how do you come up with these natural growth algorithms? That's interesting to me. How does you just look at nature and kind of initially copy nature and how it grows? How how does that start? Yeah. Well, that's what's so crazy is like, I don't have to come up with any of it. Like this has already been studied. Like if you Google like any plant, any process, you know, growth analysis, like it's been studied in biology. It's kind of been studied the way things grow and the process things grow. And what you can find is like, when you find kind of a growth analysis, it's very kind of simple to translate that into computational design and into like parametric modeling. So the more specific you get, obviously you have like more specific cases, but I would say like generally the way plants grow, almost every plant on the planet grows through kind of a differential growth logic, which is like a very simple core concept, which is that things grow at different rates at different times. So in plants, like, you know, if you're looking at a mushroom, the mushroom part that gets sunlight grows a little bit faster. And what happens is when you have things growing at different rates at different times is one side will naturally start to curl or will start to kind of bubble. And so this is why, like, this is why even plant, um, like a, a leaf, the outside of a leaf grows like slightly faster than the inside of the leaf, which is what makes it like uh, curl up in like the perfect Pringle shape. Um, and so there's like, there's kind of a few of these like interesting concepts that are pretty um, universal in terms of like kind of making simple models. But then like, obviously the more you get, um, the closer that you get to kind of plants uh, or the closer that you get to like specific specific like um one-to-one comparisons you know you have a little bit more leeway and things change but it's pretty exciting it's it's cool stuff (laughs) oh it's really cool it's very cool i I know there's a lot of makers out there and and, uh, maker spaces are important for people who are coming up with new ideas like you have what's your thoughts on the maker space and the maker community and what's the benefits of that and where do you see that going so I love the maker community, the maker spaces. I, I mean, for me, like I grew up in a maker space. I grew up in a fab lab. I was so lucky to be kind of able to enter those spaces as a teenager and as someone who like, quote unquote, like didn't know what they were doing. Um, and that's what I think is like so special about the maker community is it's full of people who, you know, don't necessarily like have the training to know what they're doing or, you know, it's so welcoming. It's like, it's such a welcoming space that anybody can come and learn and anyone can come play. And that's why I think is like so important about the maker community. But I think the other thing that's really cool, which I've actually had a lot of exposure to is, you know, I grew up in kind of like the traditional maker space, which is so amazing. You know, that's where I learned like a lot of kind of my fundamental design skills, how to make robots, how to build things, you know, in the physical world. But the other thing that I was exposed to kind of the past few years, which really completely rev- revolutionized my life was I actually just kind of walked into a biomaker space, which is like a bio, you know, molecular biology lab, basically. Um, and there's, you know, they're starting to pop up everywhere. They're basically like really well-equipped high school biology labs. 
I have to say it was one of the coolest experiences ever. Cause I remember when I was a kid, I went in the maker space and like, you know, now it's been, you know, a decade since I first stepped foot in the maker space. And I, I almost lost that feeling of like wonder excitement. Like for me, I'm more of a mentor in those spaces now, but to be able to go from scratch into it, like a field that I have no idea what I'm doing and show up into a bio space and feel that kind of experience of being welcomed into a space was just so incredible. And I think like so amazing. And now like here I am, you know, I've been uh, also in addition to being the artist residence at Dassault, I'm also the artist residence at Boston Open Science Laboratory, which is a biomaker space in um, Cambridge. Um, I'm just like so appreciative and in love with the maker movement because it's like here I am with no background in biology and I can genetically modify organisms all by my own. You know, I can like really understand kind of the core levels of what's happening. And I'm, I can actually like grow computers now, which is crazy. You know, like I walked into this space, like, Hey, like I'm, I ha- I have an electronics background. Like I know how to make things like, but I have this crazy idea and they're like, Oh, that's so doable. Like we love biology. We don't know how to make electronics. Like let's do it. And I think that's kind of like part of just like the magic of maker spaces is that everybody has their own kind of niche. Nobody necessarily knows like specifically what they're doing or what exactly has to happen to get things done. But like somehow, you know, everybody just works together and works on these community projects. And I mean, you can really like seriously change the world that way pretty quickly. And I think that's, that's something that's happened to me a few times. Actually, it's like, you know, you stumble into a project and you find out like you accidentally kind of changed the world or like you accidentally like made a little blimp that changed someone's life. And that's, that's so incredible. I mean, it's just like, we need, we need to empower communities and we need to build our own, you know, I just, I just believe we need to solve our own problems. And that, you know, if we solve our own problems, usually our problems are also related to someone else's problems and things can snowball. Where do you think this can go? Where, where do you think the maker communities can evolve into? I mean, for me, I think the future, which is kind of already starting to happen, but I think this idea of like including biology and including kind of nature and climate change and all those good things. Um, and I think that's kind of where we're seeing a lot of maker spaces going. You know, some of these like super maker spaces have biology labs. There's, you know, over a hundred labs across the country of biomaker spaces that that to me is like one very clear path that's happening, especially in terms of biomaterials, growing your own materials. You know, one of the biggest like critiques of the maker movement and making in general is like you're just making more stuff and like we're on a planet that has too much stuff. And so I think that there's a lot that can be done kind of with biology and with working with nature and biomaterials to kind of make, you know, make the stuff that you're making also have a plan for the end of its life. And so I think that's like one kind of general direction that we're seeing with maker spaces. But I think the other kind of thing that I see is really, you know, how do we start as designers kind of building our own machines and building our own tools and kind of working on our own tools? Like that's, that's another amazing part of the maker movement and maker spaces is like, it's this unified set of tools that any lab anywhere can have. And all of a sudden you have this unified level of skills and understanding to make is truly a language. And so when you have kind of access to these tools, all of a sudden you can communicate with someone who maybe you don't speak their same language, but you can actually start to co-design and create with them really quickly. And so I think that's kind of the next level is like almost like building our own tools, like in terms of like the machine that builds the machine that builds the machine, which is like a lot of what kind of the fab foundation is working on now. 
I, I think one of the the always the toughest things in makerspaces is getting projects really started and going, you know, because what happens is you have so much energy and you have so much excitement and enthusiasm. But sometimes what you're missing is like a common goal or kind of this like bigger picture project or something that wants to happen. And so I think that there's there's also some really exciting stuff to happen in terms of like, how do you kind of connect with other, like connect the maker community together to all work towards this large common goal. But I just, I mean, I just think makers are like, they're like the maker slash hacker slash whatever you want to call them. Like people who just kind of get stuff done. They know, you know, they don't write about it in papers. They just go and they do it. And then, you know, you can write a paper about it after. I just think those are the people that are like, not only going to save this planet, but just keep pushing progress forward and keep evolving kind of humans and our built environment as we know it. Wow. Wow. Excellent. Well said. I, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> blown you. away. So what, what is it that, that you're passionate about that we can also share? I think maybe the other thing I'll say is like, I, I think it's really important in this maker conversation to like include art and include community and include feeling. Cause I think that's one thing is, you know, oftentimes we get so focused on like solving problems that we forget that, you know, there's this whole other kind of emotional realm that we have as humans that we're so lucky to have. And that's the realm that we can really access through art and through experience and through kind of these like interactive things. And I think that's one thing to not be, to not be kind of taken for granted or to be pushed aside is like how important and how powerful kind of creating experiences is, whether that's through music, through sound, through, you know, paintings, through making robots that make paintings, kind of whatever, whatever level that you have. But I think the other thing that's so important to us as humans and to us as communities and as people is just to make things that don't necessarily do something that we needed it to do, but to just create things that create experiences and create conversations. And so I think the maker community, it sh like should always be kind of linked with art and expression. And it's just so important. Like the part that actually makes the community is the shared experiences. And that's, that's something to be valued and appreciated and nurtured, I think. I like that as a shared experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Kate. If you are a maker or inventor looking for a community in which to share ideas and collaborate and learn more about the many tools SOLIDWORKS offers just for makers, go to SOLIDWORKS.com maker and join the makers made in 3D community a space where all are welcome to learn, engage, discover, share knowledge, and network with other makers. Again, learn more at SOLIDWORKS.com maker. We'll be back again soon with more great Born to Design podcast stories at SOLIDWORKS.com podcast or wherever podcasts are readily available. Until then, keep innovating.